Well, happy new year and welcome back to the Will and Rob show. It is just wonderful to be with you after, uh, gosh, what has been a whole different year now that we're into. I was trying to figure out how to make that a joke. It's been a year, but not really. I should say we haven't talked since last year. That'd be a (laughs) clever dad joke that everybody has made, but it hasn't been made on this show yet, which means that in some way it's fresh and new and original to our context. Good point. Good point. uh, Yeah. Happy 2022 to you, Robert, and to all the listeners out there who have tuned in. My name is Will Stockdale. I am still a ministry associate with Ministry to State. Uh, Here, as always, with my very good friend, colleague, co-worker, co-laborer in the Gospel Seminary and father, husband, um, you know, whatever. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. In your Twitter bio, uh, Robert Hassler. Um, Robert, you, you flew in yesterday and are finally getting settled today. And, uh, you, would you like to explain why, how your day has been and what was it like to, to get off the airplane and experience what you experienced? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. Well, I've, I've been wanting to relive, uh, this day, uh, for our dear listeners. Um, yes, I flew in yesterday, uh, from, Phoenix. Uh, that was the second stop, uh, on, uh, Hassler baby tour, uh, through America, uh, for, uh, other parents who are listening, uh, you know about this. I'm sure that when you have a newborn, you, you take the, you take the tour and you take, uh, your newborn child to all the family that wants to see him or her. And so that's what we did this Christmas. So my parents have never, my parents have never asked to see (laughs) so we left on uh december 17th actually uh for texas we were there for quite a while and then we headed off to arizona and we were there for another few you know couple weeks or a week and a half or so and then we came back yesterday and we were at the what's called the desert museum in tucson arizona and it's this beautiful outdoor uh museum uh, and you can see the mountains and the, you know, the cactus are everywhere. And there's all these like desert animals. And it was like 60 degrees or something. And on my phone, I'm getting pictures of DC and Northern Virginia, just getting dumped with snow. Um, and I understand that our entire highway system was shut down for quite a while. And uh, Senator Tim Kaine was stuck on the road for something like 27 hours. He should write a book about his, like his day-to-day diary of what happened. Have you ever seen the movie Locke that came out? It's no. with, um, it's, it's, it's a great movie. The whole movie takes place with the guy in his car driver. Anyways, never mind. They've tried it. Maybe they can make a, 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 a lifetime sequel. movie, a yeah. lifetime movie out of it. You call it after Hillary. You know, there's some kind of a <laughs> metaphor there. <laughs> so we, so I, so I'm he- hearing about everything that's happening. Uh, here and the only thing I can think about is that my car is sitting in an uncovered economy parking at Ronald Reagan, and uh, uh, just wondering what was going to happen. Uh, so we finally did land yesterday, and uh, I blame my mother for it. She she jinxed us. She texted me right as we were boarding because I she knew all of our flight info. Um, that's a that's a classic parent move to learn about your child's flights 
uh, so that they can send you a text right when you're boarding, even though you haven't talked to them about that flight. They just know that you're flying that day. And she said, hope you're doing well. Uh, love you guys. Uh, praying that your car starts uh, when you get there. Not something I had actually thought about. I thought about my car being dumped with snow and like having to d- dig it out or something like that. Didn't think that my car wouldn't actually start. And turns out as I got off my uh, bus to get to my car, uh, I went in and not even got the engine to click. It was just totally dead, um, which is not a great feeling when you have a newborn and a three-year-old who needs to go to the bathroom. From what I understand though, that, and, and this shouldn't surprise you, I hope not, but, but Kirsten was the best behaved out of hundred percent wife was, was, was really had it. Together. I was in, I was in full panic mode. Okay. Um, and did not know what to do. And my wife was very, uh, organized, disciplined, calm. She was a scheduler on the Hill. So like putting out fires is just kind of like, you know, that's everyday business. Whereas to me, I'm like, wait, one thing's wrong. We've got to, we've got to call in the, the Navy SEALs. Um, and so that we were able to take care of it. Uh, we had a great Uber driver shout out, uh, Rahim. He hooked us up. He had a great Uber experience with him. He, um, he told me he had five kids. So he like this, like traveling with kids to him. He was like, Oh yeah, I totally get this. I think he technically broke a rule, but he did it for us, which is at Ronald Reagan. If this is, this is getting real niche for DC listeners. But if you know what Ronald Reagan, Uber drivers have to pick you up on the same curb with everybody else. And it's like a mass, like madhouse. Well, Raheem somehow figured out to come in with the taxis. And so we were on the unbusy side of the street where there was no other traffic. And we just got to sit there and install car seats and, and be, you know, take our time and not feel rushed. And it was a huge blessing something kind of small like that, but a huge blessing. So shout out Raheem. Um, but yeah, so that was my my day traveling. I never want to do it again. But I'm home safe. My family's safe. We have both cars, all of our stuff. All you you went you went back today and picked up your car. Yeah, because I called back. AAA, and I guess AAA was trying to get Senator Tim Kaine off the road because they told mm-hmm. me they could not get to me for mm-hmm. many many hours. So I said, you know what? I'll just get home, but, uh, sleep in my own bed for the first time in 20 days, um, and then tackle it tomorrow, which is what I did, and all is well. I got my car started. Curtis, my AAA agent, great guy. Another shout out. That guy helped me out. It was awesome. Yeah, we, we would really like to thank the good people at Uber and the good people at AAA for all that they have done for uh, this country. But Amen. it sounds that I didn't have any car issues yesterday, so I'll just I'll just say that. But the snow has been beautiful. I will say that. That's because well, so I, I texted you, um, or maybe maybe it was when we were calling that one day, and you had said, you know, you were talking about the snow and I was like, wait, Will, have you never lived anywhere where there's snow? Because I'm also a Texas kid, but I went to school in Michigan. So snow is kind of old news for me now, but you said you had not really lived anywhere where you had snow like that. No, the, the South Louisiana and, uh, and (laughs) college station and forward (laughs) Texas aren't really places that have a ton of snow. No, Um, no blizzards there. No, no. The closest would be Amarillo. It was probably the best place in Texas to get some decent snow but that's where my dad's from that's like a dusting oh dude don't get some good snow there's okay okay snow up there but uh other than that one of the things uh, i want to ask about is as we start this year uh as we as we look to this year and I think about goals making a lot of resolutions i haven't really made that many resolutions or any actually steadfast concrete resolutions maybe i'll wait till the weekend um but i did want to ask 
what your uh, goals or plans that you have started for this year that you're undertaking at the moment? Yeah. Well, I think one thing I'd like to highlight is uh, the devotional I wrote for Ministry State to kick off the year, uh, because the title of that devotional was my new year's resolution is to be more fearful. And Brene Brown would not, no, not be okay. Or, or Sean and I, uh, well, I'd have to think more. It so. definitely, I tried to go with kind of a little bit of a, uh, a I, uh, grabbing title. Okay. Um, so I wasn't trying to be clickbaity, but I was trying to sort of reel people in. Um, and, uh, I think my point with the devotional was not that I, I'm trying to be more fearful, in sort of a broad sense, because, you know, of all the things that the scriptures tell us about to not fear. Um, I could have been fearing a lot about uh, my car situation, uh, but the reality is that God is in control. And so I did not need to fear uh, the mysteries of the future or, or what was going to happen. I knew the Lord would, would care for me. I, I'm not trying to be fearful of others because um, uh, as we see, especially in something like politics, uh, or as something that like Master Yoda says in Star Wars, that fear often leads to hate. Um, and so we want to avoid fear for that reason. But my, my point of saying I wanted to be more fearful was that I want to be more fearful of the Lord. Um, one of the things I think a lot of people do at the beginning of the new year is they start their Bible reading plans over again. Uh, and on the first day of my Bible reading plan, I came to Proverbs 1. And in Proverbs 1.7, we learned that uh, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. And certainly uh, as I approach my 30th birthday this year, uh, I want to be becoming more wise. I want to be gaining knowledge. And uh, the Bible tells me that, that the, the beginning of that, that would be the genesis of that is fear of the Lord. Um, and as I really was sitting and reflecting about, you know, do I fear the Lord? I also was thinking about Paul's words uh, to the Corinthian church um, and that, you know, I'm a pretty Calvinistic guy. I'm pretty reformed. I'm, I'm very certain uh, in Christ's salvific work on the cross for me and what he did and what he accomplished and, and what he's done um, and the death blow he's dealt to my, my enemies like sin and death and Satan. Uh, but that does not excuse or diminish this real seriousness and severity of my own sin um, and what I struggle with uh, even today. And so one of the things that Paul says to the Corinthian church, who I think is dealing with a very similar thing, is says, don't you, don't you remember, don't you know that you were bought with a price? Um, that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and so uh, I think that I see all those things connected. And, and so one of the things I'm really aiming for this year is to be to becoming more fearful um, of the Lord. Uh, because I also think that fearing the Lord leads to love. Um, because uh, it's only because of God's holiness and his condescending love to us in the person of Jesus Christ um, and what he accomplished uh, and, and the, the, the purity of all that, the holiness of all that, the righteousness of all that um, is why I, I love my savior. And so um, I, I see the two also related. And so that's a big, that's kind of a new year's resolution for me. Uh, on top of that, I want to be reading more history. And so I picked up Winston Churchill's history of the English speaking peoples this break. So I've been going through that as well, but that's a little bit on the lighter side. Will, what are you, what are you hoping and planning for in year 2022? Gosh, nuts, isn't it? 20, I oh mean, 2022. I had to uh, kind of second guess myself there. Cause I didn't know if I was right. Yeah. It's 2022. That's wild. Yeah. Well, we're almost a weekend or, or yeah. Uh, six days in tomorrow when this episode's released, 
In terms of scripture, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but we're doing a Bible study through Genesis for people on the hill. And uh, so I've been spending a lot of time this week reading scholars on um, Genesis and getting gaining insights and gleaning from them. And there are two things. One is from Genesis 3, reading the account of serpent and Eve, just how uh, cruelly clever he is in getting to us and uh, thinking about what you've said about sin, just how clever sin is that a lot of times temptation, uh, what sin, what the enemy seeks to reap in us comes at us through a back door there. There'll be almost like kind of a, a dangling of a, a um, distraction in front of us. And then with the other hand, you know, coming at us with, with the real temptation that we succumb to, but I've enjoyed that. The other is uh, I've really appreciate this. So the, the word in Hebrew for the lights that God puts in the sky is the same word that is used for the lamps that are set in the tabernacle. And there's a lot that goes into understanding what is happening in Genesis uh, one and two. And I think what we're seeing is what would fall into a framework view, which is that in Genesis one, then uh, days one through one, two, three of creation, you have this kind of setting the stage. And then you have days four, five, six that are filling it with the props and the actors for the framework that has been put in place. And with these lights, it seems these lamps, there is a sense in which they are set to mark the days and seasons as they pass. And uh, this is not at all astrology, but I do think that it seems that there's an argument that could be made for the liturgical calendar in this setup in that the lamps mark a uh, as the stars in the sky and um, as the seasons change from one to the next, there is something set in motion in nature that uh, helps us remember what God has done at different times throughout redemptive history. Of course, it's not the stars that decided what happened. It's not the stars that had any control. It was God who was acting providentially and sovereignly uh, and what he has set in place can serve as a reminder because they are unique throughout different things occur at different parts throughout the year. Of course, it's not just one season, there are changes in the seasons. So I think that's a really beautiful thing to remember and, and a deep truth that God has set things in motion and has given us the ability to remember through nature. And also just with that in, in the ancient mindset of the Hebrews, there, there wouldn't be a separation between nature and supernature. Uh, it was all filled with God, that God was dwelling in the cosmos that he had set up as his temple. And so to talk about the stars and the heavens being signs of God's work uh, isn't as weird as we think of it today. It was like, well, of course, what else would it be? That's how this stuff works. And so I bring that up because uh, maybe this is a segue here. One thing we wanted to talk about is to talk about the stars in the sky that mark the seasons in the liturgical calendar. One thing we wanted to do is talk a little bit, make some prognostications, some uh, predictions, some some pseudo prophecies. Maybe I'm yeah, trying to keep it the, the alliteration doesn't work when it's spoken, but in written form, <laughs> I did I did three P's, four P's there in a row of uh, what what changes things we might see in 2022 that'll come about uh, culturally. Uh, within the church. Um, tomorrow is January 6th. 
And so definitely going to see a lot happening up here on the Hill. I'm sure that all the news networks are going to be doing a lot of coverage on that day. Um, so it's an interesting way. And, and also um, today is the last day of Christmas and tomorrow is the first day of Epiphany. Uh, so instead of this, this, uh, this tragic event that's part of our, our history, I'd say, is now going to be commemorated and just wonder what that means. But Robert, I did want to kick it over to you. What uh, what do you think? What, yeah. what are some thoughts, predictions when you look ahead this year that you think are most likely prevalent? Yeah, I, I, I think something happening within the church that I'm seeing, I don't know if there's like one word for it, but a sort of uh, ad fontis feeling, a sort of back to the sources feeling um, about church. Uh, I think, you know, obviously I think we're the first generation um, to really come out of the, uh, I I don't want this to sound derogatory, so please don't hear me that way, but I think we're the first generation to really come out of sort of the, the secret friendly movement. Um, The big churches, not in chapels, not in, with no steeples, um, more praise uh, and worship, sort of contemporary worship. Uh, you know, casual dress, kind of that era of, of church. Um, and I do think that we are sort of the first generation um, that's kind of coming out of that. And as in, as every generation does sort of strikes its own path. And I do see a tendency to uh, want to return maybe to some more of the older forms uh, of worship. And I see that in a couple different ways. Um, and on the one hand, I see it even coming out in something like preaching where um you know, I grew up in a church where it was penal substitutionary atonement. Like that is, that is the theory of atonement that you heard day in and day out from the, from the pulpit. Um, and I didn't really hear much else. And uh, I, I, I was traveling different churches because we were, you know, visiting different places. Um, and I heard sort of a more Christus Victor atonement theory uh, over and over again. Um, and of course, uh, if you read uh, the early church fathers, you do get a lot of Christus Victor. Um, I think penal substitutionary atonement's there. I'm reading St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation, and there's a lot of things there that I would point and be like, mm, there's penal substitutionary atonement. So I'm not trying to do like sort of the, the cringy, you know, seminarian take where it's like, everything I was taught was wrong. Um, I don't think that's right. But uh, Well, you're really getting your money's worth in seminary if that is the case. That's true. That's, really that's the only way to do it. Um, but I do think that uh, along with that is just sort of this, you know, these older forms of, of worship, of church. And you see that in things like, look at how many sort of prominent evangelicals have left, you know, the SBC and gone to the Anglican church. Um, I don't necessarily think that all of this is, is unqualified positive, if that makes sense. Um, I think traditions exist for a reason. There, there are sectarian differences for legitimate reasons beyond aesthetics. since we need to, we need, we need to remember that um, as, you know, members of different traditions uh, go forward. But um, I do think that a trend that I'm seeing within the church is a, a, just a sort of, you know, hey, how does this connect back to what the church has been doing in the last century or the centuries before that, or even it, in its origin? Um, I think people are attracted by the uh, older liturgical forms. I think they're attracted by the hymns. I think they're attracted by, you know, reading confessions. I think that's, and, and that's really important to people. Um, and I think that's a development we'll see within the church over the next, you know, year, year and a half. The Christus Victors particularly? 
Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I just, I keep hearing it pop up. I did it in my own sermon that I preached in November. I realized when I went back and read it, I was like, oh, wow. Like there it is. I mean, I'll say in the, in the reform tradition, the penal substitutionary atonement is, is one that is the most emphasized, the most, most heavily emphasized and prioritized of the different theories of the atonement. But you don't think that's going to be an issue or is that something you're looking forward to? Is that going to be helpful, unhelpful? What exactly are you, are you saying here? No, I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, it's obviously not all bad or all good. I mean, it, it has its own, you know, strengths and weaknesses. I mean, look, if you read Colossians 1, I mean, we've been uh, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into his marvelous light. I mean, that's, that's, that's ransom. You're going to get that. Revelation is, is Christus Victor. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Um, and so I think it's all there. I think a lot of it is scriptural. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, don't, you know, that's bad that it's, you know, sort of seeping into our churches or it's, you know, it's bad that it's coming from the pulpit. One thing that I think we just have to sort of be aware of. Um, and I, I caught it in my own preaching uh, when I was kind of using a Christus Victor theory when I was preaching through this passage in, in, in Mark, uh, which is that uh, penal substitution atonement is, is good because it really drives us to our own sin our own need of a savior um, because uh, our sin is the reason um, that we are alienated from God. Our sin is the reason why Christ uh, had to come and and give his life as a ransom. I think that what I was going to say, what is the definition here? We've gotten a little ahead of ourselves. What is the definition of penal substitutionary atonement? And then what is the, what is the definition of Christus Victor? And then I don't know if I can, I I can't give like a great definition, like probably much better theologians could. So I would probably tell people to just go look it up. But, you know, I think broadly speaking, the way you'll be able to catch it is um, penal substitutionary atonement, right? You know, your sins are transferred to Christ, Christ atones for them on the cross, and then you are imputed his righteousness. It's this idea of transferring. Um, And so, you know, order salutis, Romans eight, it's all there. Right. That's that's kind of sort of penal substitutionary atonement. You know, Christ's victor is the is the revelation images. Right. You know, Christ coming on the, the white horse. It's, you know, incarnation is a declaration of war is a way that I was uh, heard it uh, preached uh, while I was traveling. Uh, Satan has, has claimed Jesus's territory and Jesus comes into the world to, to claim it all back, uh, including his people. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of broadly how you'll hear it preached. Uh, and. I think, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, that's what I heard growing up. That's, that's very much what was prominent. Um, I heard Christ, Christus Victor, but just not as much. Lately, I've seen that those kind of things reverse. Um, and I do think that one of the concerns, not a concern, but one of the things that we should just be aware of um, in the Christus, Christus Victor model um, is that it can be easy to forget um, our own sin. Sin sort of becomes this nebulous thing, this outside force that's out there. Um, and we're sort of just, we're just victims. Um, so we're victims of brokenness. We're victims of, of out there sin. And all that's true. But we also need to, ref- we also need to remember that it's uh, our sin as well. Um, that Christ does come to reclaim his territory, to reclaim his creation, including his people. But we also need to remember that those people were in open rebellion against him. Um, And I think that that can just sometimes be lost because you can't say everything at, you know, at every time, but um, that's, that's one sort of thing that I would just kind of be aware of as we, if we do see this trend 
Yeah, I think for me, one of the helpful things in making this distinction is that the penal substitutionary atonement is using the legal language of what Christ has accomplished for us in talking about uh, the punishment of sin being death, of us being unrighteous, of being unjustified. And then by the work of Christ being made right, there's the courtroom imagery. There is the uh, the idea of original sin that is passed down through this idea of federal headship, um, which is that our sins are, as a covenant was made with Adam, we, we, we are um, born into the, that sin as well. And so Christ's work is a once for all declaration on us because of his work, not just because God said it, with it, because God actually dealt with the sinner. As John Murray would say, he liquidated mm-hmm. our, our, uh, our state of being unjust or unjustified before God. And, um, and I, and I think something else with this is what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross in his life, death, resurrection, ascension is so enormous is so great that however we approach it and discuss it, we, we need to make sure that we don't leave out an explanation just because we think it might smack of something that doesn't, fit perfectly within our tradition. And there are certainly boundaries to this, but there is the element of Christ ransoming us. There is the element of, of him being victor over all the powers of darkness. Uh, there is the him, uh, him being, um, him defending us uh, against the enemy's claims over us as his property. And so there, there are these different elements. And I, and, and I, I think what we need to maybe be a little more comfortable with is realize the weight of what Christ has done is maybe too great for us just to think that we can hold it to one category here, um, that it needs to at least be inclusive of the magnificence of all Christ has done in, in his work. Amen. I think that's, that's spot on, but I, I just, yeah, I see this happening more and more. I see more people, uh, you know, joining other traditions, higher church traditions, more liturgical traditions, uh, and I just think we're going to continue to see it. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's going to come with a whole host of good things. It's also going to have other sort of side consequences and, and effects. And so um, yeah, that's something I wanted. That's, that's something I wanted to bring up. And this is not to be a fear monger or worry, 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 in any way, but um, we've seen a lot of people that we, we know, or I was on the phone with one of my best friends from college who uh, he and his wife are now attending an Anglican church. That sounds like a really awesome church. Like it is, it is really great. And I'm glad that they're there. We all know a lot of people who have joined Anglican communion, even the Presbyterian tradition for a similar reason. There's an attraction to the liturgy and to the tradition and to the confessions a lot of times. And I think um, part of that is there's stability there. There's an element and greater comfort with mystery in liturgy um, that something is going on and that we are participating in what Christ has done for us. I think on the other side, though, we do have a rising comfort of things with this uh, growing familiarity with the occult, with the, um, again, this neo-pagan, pre-pagan um, zodiac uh, astrology stuff that's on the rise. And I'm not saying that just because someone wants to be part of a liturgy or part of a, an ancient tradition that they are susceptible to these weird occultish uh, mysteries and, and bringing in pagan type practices. But what I am saying is that there's importance for us to hold to the biblical truth that is there within those traditions that, um, that, you know, what the 
Westminster Confession of Faith says, if you're a Presbyterian, that you that you know, or or the Canons of Dort, or the Belgic Confession, or the Augsburg, and if you're Anglican, that you that you understand the Thirty Nine Articles, that you appreciate the Book of Common Prayer, and so I guess what I'll say is that that people who are listening who are who are new to these traditions, make sure you familiarize yourself with these documents that are there. Baptist, okay, the London Baptist Confession. <laughs> um, and if um, you know someone who is new, like introduce them as well to these documents. Because I think that can be a good way because I, I would say we can run the risk in bringing in a lot of things to these liturgical religious practices um, that are going to be adopted from the culture on which we're swimming the societal influences at the moment that wherever that is, I mean, that, that happened, that happened when we went from like traditional church service, like you were saying with the steeples to like the individual rock concert worship service, you're borrowing from what we thought was relevant in the culture at the, at the time without actually adhering to, you know, these are truths that have been handed down to us that we're going to, to hold to. And these are primary for us. These are first principles. Um, and so that, that can happen again. And, and so what can protect us from, bringing strange fire before God uh, is, is by sticking close to his word and what the saints before us have said is true about his word. And I, I just, um, I think the church needs to be, be aware of that, be ready for that, that not all this shift is going to be good. Look, we're PCA president. Of course, we, we love the liturgy and the tradition. We great Anglican friends. We love and really appreciate Roman Catholic. I mean, uh, Baptist, it's just that um, need to be aware that, most likely not all of this is going to be good, that there's going to come some with it. Not every church will have the same effect in it, um, but there probably will be a fair amount of that that comes up as well. That's a really good um, call uh, to heed. I mean, the reality is that there aren't Presbyterians, Anglicans, Lutherans, uh, Roman Catholics, and Baptists because of aesthetic taste levels. I mean, those traditions exist because of legitimate theological uh, debate and uh, theological positions, um, and so it's it's only res- it's not being sec- it's not being sort of unneedingly divisive or sectarian to come into a tradition and just appreciate its theological distinctions and to lean into them. Um, in fact, I I, t- I tend to find that when I'm not trying to sort of water down uh, to find a you know. Uh, lowest common denominator of, you know, evangelicalism with my friends of different traditions, you know, it's, it's when we're leaning into our, our differences, talking about those things that I, I find the most fellowship. And so um, I think we've kind of been trained to say, oh, sectarian differences, you know, equal, always bad. Um, and that's not all, always the case. Sometimes they, they serve very useful purposes, um, which can actually lead to better uh, fellowship and, and better uh, flourishing. And so I, I would just kind of lean, I would just kind of say that for right now. Yeah. I was talking to Adam Smith, our, our friend and colleague earlier today, and he was in Dallas visiting a really good church, really good Anglican church in Dallas called All Saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was talking with one of the, a friend of yours, Dustin Messer. I know of Dustin. We did uh, a fellowship together and uh, a Catholic. Uh, yes. He had apparently written an article for the Gospel Coalition where he said, what we need is better Catholics, better Anglicans, better Presbyterians. Mm. And I think with that is, you know, find out what we what we believe here yeah. and hold to it. Um, we don't have to be belligerent. We don't have to be caustic or rude. We should very much be charitable. But the fact is, like, our 
Baptist brothers and sisters, our Anglican brothers and sisters, our Lutheran, they, they love the Bible too. Yeah. They love Jesus too. <laughs> and are seeking to live that out. Let's, let's have some like, like love around that. Let's have some uh, fellowship around that. That doesn't mean that we have to like have some homogenous worship service together if we, if we believe they're different, but, but let's have some humility here. Definitely. And I say that with full intent of making jokes about Baptists and Anglicans as well. So here, um, here, hopefully I can do that. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, is there, so, I mean, that's, those are a couple of things in the church. I mean, is there anything, and you, I guess you briefly touched on it. Is there anything else sort of culturally that you see coming in uh, to play come 2022? Well, you saw, we, we talked and you had seen a video I saw, and that's the use of Walmart's attempt to adopt the metaverse. Oh yeah, metaverse. And, and I, I've been saying this and, uh, I'll still say it. I, I would just say avoid the metaverse. I, I think that it's not. We should make t-shirts. It's not, like, it's not like some conspiracy theory fear. It's the fact of what it can do to our ability to enact and um, interact with the space around us and actual human beings and how it can have such a negative effect. I mean, who'd have, who'd have thought that Zoom would be old fashioned in just a couple years? And that's going to be like the old days with telegrams and whatnot. So I think that there's just, there's a, there's a uniqueness about the metaverse and a, and a risk that's associated to it that I think um, disembodies us from how we were created to be, allows us toys with things. And I, I put on a VR headset only like one other time before, and it was a strange experience coming back into reality after mm. being in that thing, um, because I was able to create all this world and, and like, um, play these games and my world was this visual reality. And so to, to shift out of that has some effects. And, and when we're actually using it, not for games, but for actual consumer purchases, like being able to buy things and try on things and look at stuff and have conversations and with other people, I think that it will, there's going to be a dissonance that occurs between what actually is the case and what we have experienced as the case. I think that's totally, that's totally right. I mean, I, I knew this about myself that VR would probably be bad for me. I learned this in college uh, when me and my roommates would do like hour long binges playing GTA. And then you would go get in a car and start driving and, you know, stop signs, traffic lights and traffic lanes seemed a little bit nebulous after playing GTA for two hours. Well, a lot of this has to do is I'm not denying that. I think it's a great example. The other <laughs> truth is look, college dude our brains just do not form as fast as our female that's true that's very true image bearers <laughs> so amen to that there's another level there that are, that's true um yeah i watched that video too and i you know i i, I thought everything that you're saying too like this like oh this is really dangerous i don't like this um i don't like the disembodiment i also was watching it and just being like i, I saw a lot of people you know with the new year's people often post like uh, stills or, you know, screenshots from old movies, you know, that are set in the future, um, you know, movies from the seventies and the eighties. And, you know, they're having a lot of the years that they have are like the years that we're living now. So, you know, I saw, you know, there was a movie that had, you know, in the near, in the distant future, and it was like 2022 and, you know, in, in all these movies, right. Like what is the scene often uh, there's like one of two things. It's either like crumbling apocalypse or it's like, chrome skyscrapers that reach up into the clouds and there's hover hoverboards and hovercraft and you know teleportation and all these kind of things 
And, you know, I'm sitting here being like, well, you know, all I wanted was a jetpack, And all I got was this like Walmart virtual reality shopping that looks like more tedious than actually going shopping at Walmart, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'll push back on that. Okay. I, I hear people say that, but the practicality of a hoverboard or a floating car is like the, the power of my iPhone and my computer to do so much and see so many things I would say makes our world vastly different than the world in which people are on hoverboards. That's fair. Uh, the Jetsons didn't have uh, mega computers in their pockets. The, co- the connectivity. I mean, to me, the, like R2-D2's hologram of Princess Leia is actually a much closer example of how crazy uh, things are. But that's that's the galaxy far, far away. So it's hard. That's to fair. That kind of and a long time ago. Wow. Um, the Which says we're way behind. We are. But like, yeah, I, you're right. The... The thing though that I did not like, which I thought was just creepy, and I saw people kind of posting this too, and uh, uh, it got, it kind of made me warm inside. Uh, this is the the sort of um, uh, uh, old libertarian streak I used to have uh, that's mostly gone, but sometimes reveals its ugly heads. I think in the video she's like, um, "We know that you already have a gallon of milk in your refrigerator. Do you really want to buy the second one?" And it's like, I immediately, I'm like, wait, why does, why is the Walmart lady keeping track of what's in my refrigerator? And then the, I think the, the part that really, I think raises, you know, alarm bells for people is like the, the amount of nudging that can happen in virtual reality. That's just different in real world. So like, basically you have a, a salesperson keep popping up, trying to nudge you to buy, you know, it, it doesn't want you to buy the second gallon of milk, but it's all the more willing to nudge you towards buying the $800 plasma screen. And I just think that a lot of people, uh, you know, with the already distrust of institutions, of corporations, of the media that we, we already live in and swim in right now, um, I think people are sort of spotting that in metaverse stuff and being like, mm, I don't really like that. I don't really know how I feel about that. Um, and that's going to be interesting as this technology is actually applied. People have to interact with it more. Um, you know, like you said, Zooms are going to become obsolete. I mean, we are going to be eventually at a point where probably not in the so distant future, you know, where you're logging into your virtual reality headset for your corporate meetings. Um, I mean, that day is fast approaching. It will be interesting to see how many people, you know, quickly adapt, easily adapt, um, you know, adapt excitedly, or how many people sort of resist these things because of uh, all the other assumptions or other things that we're swimming in right now. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've said this before, but you mentioned the concept of nudging that has been written on and talked about a lot, which is the idea of instead of forcing someone to change a behavior, um, you gently nudge them in a direction to get them to change that behavior. Like an example that they've given is uh, in a school cafeteria, you put the broccoli easier to reach for kids than the chocolate cakes that they're nudged to reach for the broccoli and the chocolate cakes harder. Well, that's one thing. The internet does nudging too, but the problem is that we can't see exactly what we're being kept from. We're only being nudged towards what we ought to take or consume, which when people realize that they're being played with to an extent, I think it leads to a lot of resentment, which I think is a great plug for transparency, vulnerability, and access and local communities with your... (laughs) get involved with your church, meet in person when it's safe and you can, and uh, you can get as much contact with people as possible, uh, worship together. So uh, these 
as we probably get into our weirder and weirder future, our more normal old uh, past is going to become all the more important because it's what we need. And maybe we'll Christians can be, we can be the resilient people that say, no, like, you know, uh, I'm more than just a, a brain and, and eyes. I'm a, I'm a heart and hands and with skin and pump blood. So, you know, we, we value these in-person things. I, I think the only thing I would add is um, when it comes to the, the technology, uh, just being aware of how these things move in cycles oftentimes too. So like what seems outdated now often comes back into use. And a, a lighthearted example I'll point out to this is over the Christmas break, I got an email from my YouTube TV telling me that ESPN had been dropped uh, as a channel. Um, and so now I have to go through a whole new system to get ESPN to get my sports. I told uh, my wife, I said, like, look, we're now subscribed to like six different things in order to get everything we wanted. And I said, just you wait in five years, there's going to be a new product that will promise you how to bundle all of these things um, into one, one pay for all system uh, that will be routed through your, uh, your house instead of your internet. So it will never go bad. And we'll yeah, but the only cable. way the only way you could do that would be to have a giant metal disc in your backyard that receives hey, a signal from space. I mean, that might be the only practical solution. So, I mean, these things they all come back. I I legitimately heard friend uh, who's a little bit younger than me talk about how much they love some show because instead of releasing a whole season at one time, they release it. Uh, one episode per week, like on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that. And I was like, yeah, they just invented like te- television again. Like that's what it was like. <laughs> it's just, it's just kind of funny how all these things, they just kind of cycle. They come back. Yeah. I'm going to walk back my prediction at massive metal discs, but uh, <laughs> bundling thing, but Hey, I think, I think this is a, a good place, a lighthearted place for us to land. And, and really this episode is a setup in a lot of ways to next week where we're very excited to have on uh, Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn to talk about, his work and um, his uh, scholarship in the Westminster Assembly. So come back next week as uh, we get to release an episode talking to him and the things that he's doing. I'm very, very excited and very grateful for him to, and and look forward to that conversation. So as always uh, like, and subscribe, leave a review for us. We would love that. That would mean the world to us. Um, You can follow Robert on Twitter at RD Hasler. You can follow me on Twitter at Stockdale. Will, uh, uh, check out our, our ministry state devotionals at ministrystate.org and we look forward to being back with you next week. Mm-hmm.